Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say, and let the thoughts we all think, be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Some of you think we're crazy for trying this, but we are now in week two of three of a series we're calling Christians in a Contentious Climate, in which we are aiming to equip the body of Christ here at North Sub to be distinct in this world, and particularly in this cultural moment when there's such heightened division politically, right? People sending bombs in the mail to political opponents this week. Um, So last week, we looked at Ephesians 6 in week one of this series, and we saw there that we have an enemy, his name's Satan, who isn't primarily concerned with which political party is in power at any given moment. He's much more concerned with if he can get us, Christians, to be divided against one another along the lines of conservative and progressive, and by doing so, get us to stop fighting against him, our real enemy, and start fighting against each other. So, some of you have asked me privately about what the feedback was like after the sermon. It's always difficult when we kind of wade into these deep waters of topics that could be sensitive. And most of the feedback last week actually was very thoughtful. Great questions that were raised. Uh, I did hear from one person who um, thought maybe they were being quiet during the sermon, but was overheard saying during my sermon, he's a closet liberal. Um, So that was kind of funny. That was pretty funny. Um, But most of the questions that were texted in last week actually were along the same lines. It was questions like this, you know, you gave us some guidance last week on how to talk to one another uh, about political issues, but what happens when we actually step into the voting booth? Is there any guidance there? Um, So we're going to wade into some of that today. Um, But before we start, just want to make sure that we're on the same page that if you're looking for a voter guide... You won't find one of those at North Sub as we approach these elections next Tuesday. Um, what we'll hear today, what we'll see in God's Word is much more than that a reason why it's important actually that myself, nobody else gets up here and tells you how to vote next Tuesday. Um, so we'll look at that. The text we're going to be looking at today is Romans 14. So if you turn there with me, there are Bibles in the seat in front of you if you didn't bring one. We're looking at Romans chapter 14, and just like last week's sermon text, this isn't a text that's about politics, per se. Um, This is written to Christians in Rome, and based on what you know about the Roman Empire, you may know that Rome was not a democracy, so the New Testament isn't written to people who are anguishing over their voting decisions, because they didn't really have voting decisions. However, this passage, Romans 14, does have some principles that we might apply in a day and age in which we do have um, to think through decisions regarding voting. So we're going to do that today. First, we're going to look at the text, and then we're going to see how it applies. But we have to do that with caution, right? We have to do it very carefully because that move from first century Rome to 2018 America is one that's really easy to... um, to mess up, and so we want to make sure that we get it right. So we're going to go slowly, just look first at the content of Romans 14 and its original context. Then we're going to look at the theology that kind of undergirds Romans 14, 
And then, and only then, we're going to come to some application for what it means for this election season here in America. So first, the content. We're going to camp out there for a few minutes. In Romans 14, what does it actually say? Romans 14, verses 1 through 12. Um, we're going to see that there's three parts to it. There's a section on eating certain foods, a section on special days, and then a section on God being the judge of all things. So first, the section about eating all foods. See if you can follow what the issue is as I read aloud verses 1 through 4 of Romans chapter 14. This is Paul writing. He says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So what's the food issue here? Um, It seems like there were some Jewish Christians in Rome, some Jewish people who had become believers in Jesus, who were sticking to vegetables in their diet at this time, because they wanted to really, it was really important to them to keep the Old Testament kosher laws. Right? So, so they didn't know what was in this meat that was being offered in the meat market in Rome. So they said, to be safe, let's just stick to vegetables. And then there was another group of Christians in Rome who was saying, you know what? We're living on the other side of Jesus. Jesus ushered in a new era. And now in this new era, we don't have to keep the kosher laws of the Old Testament and be restricted in what we eat. So they felt fine eating their pork chop that they had bought in the market. Paul in the passage we just read, labels the two groups. And I think the labels he uses actually give away where he personally stands on the issue. Did you see that? He calls the one group the weak in faith. And he calls the other group the strong in faith. The weak in faith are the ones with stricter standards. They're the ones who are only eating vegetables. And the strong in faith are the ones who have the relaxed standards, who are fine with eating their ham sandwiches. Um... But what kind of faith is it that Paul's talking about? Is he talking about faith in Jesus here? And there's a weak in faith in Jesus group and a strong in faith in Jesus group? I don't think it is. Because Paul doesn't talk about this as a salvation issue, does he? Take a look back at verses 1 through 4. He's not talking about it as though there's one group that's in and another group that's out. He's talking about implications of faith in Jesus for people who all do have that faith in Jesus already. So in other words, the faith that Paul's talking about in this passage is something like this. The faith that it's okay to eat all foods because of what Jesus did for us, right? So the weak in faith don't have faith that they can eat all foods. The strong in faith have that faith that they can eat all foods. Um, But what Paul doesn't do, that we might expect him to do at this point, is to make this case. Hey, you all who are weak in faith, be like the ones who are strong in faith. Right? Wouldn't we expect that? But he doesn't actually make that case in the whole chapter. He doesn't say that. He actually spends his time instead bringing up what the challenges are going to be, the temptations for each of the two groups. Right? So for the strong in faith, what's the temptation? The temptation that he lays out there is to despise those who don't eat the meat, who only eat the vegetables, according to verse 3. And we can picture what, what that temptation would be like for the strong in faith. It's like a smug, 
condescension, right? They might be just turning up their nose at these people and saying they're just backward fundamentalists. They're stuck in a bygone era trying to keep the kosher laws, right? For the weakened faith, what's their temptation? Well, their temptation, according to Paul in verse uh, 3, is that they would pass judgment on the ones who are weak in faith. And we can picture them too, right? The self-righteous types who are kind of the little minority in the church who are thinking we are the righteous remnant. Like God has really high standards of holiness and we're the only ones who take it seriously anymore. Paul says you can't pass judgment on the strong in faith. So that's the first issue, foods. This is kind of technical. We got to camp out here though first before we get to any application. So thanks for hanging with me. The second issue is similar. It's an issue about special days, and it gets handled pretty much the same way. Listen as I read verses 5 through 8. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another person esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So what's this issue about days? It seems like some Christians in Rome uh, were being really diligent about keeping the Sabbath on the correct day of the week. And they're being really diligent about observing all the old Jewish festivals and holidays. The other group of Christians in the church was fine with skipping a holiday here or there. They were fine with maybe taking their rest a different day than the normal 24-hour period set aside for the Sabbath, right? And for Paul, it's a strong and weak issue. Again, the weak are the ones who keep the Sabbath on the correct day, keep the holidays. The strong are the ones who view every day as being alike. And so the verdict is probably unsurprising based on what we've seen. Paul says, hey, there's freedom on this issue too. There's freedom to think differently about this. But according to verse 6, there's only freedom to think differently about this if, as long as each group is making their choice out of a desire to honor the Lord, out of an earnest desire to honor the Lord, right? So now we've seen two issues kind of handled the same way by Paul. He's going to do another one later in the chapter. He'll talk about drinking wine. So because Paul doesn't talk about just one issue here, we know this isn't a chapter to just direct us about food and kosher. This is a chapter that can be used by us to apply to all different sorts of issues that are disputable matters in the church. Agree to disagree type issues in the church. Paul's giving us kind of a roadmap for how to handle those type of issues. One more important note. Uh, for the church at Rome in its original context before we move on to the final part of the content here. Verse 5, something that we skipped over. Paul doesn't see that there's room for some of the Christians in Rome to say, you know what, this issue of foods, this issue of special days, these are complicated issues. And there are smart people on both sides. And so, you know, I don't know what I think. I'm just going to kind of go with the flow of whatever everybody else is doing. Because this is above my pay grade. Paul doesn't give room for that. What does he say in verse 5? He says, even on these disputable matters, even on these agree to disagree issues, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Each one should be fully convinced 
in his own mind, even about our personal convictions. Interesting. Okay, so now we get to the final part of the text. Thanks for hanging with me. Verses 9 through 12, Paul gives, makes explicit the basis for everything he's said so far in the chapter. And the basis is that God is the judge of all. That's what it all hinges on. Listen for that as I read verses 9 through 12. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. So Paul makes explicit here what he's already been implying in verses 4 and 7 and 8 in this chapter, that Jesus aims to be Lord over all. Not just Lord over the 10.30 to 11.30 hour on Sunday morning. He aims to be Lord of all of our lives. All the details of our lives down to the foods we eat and the days on which we rest and work and celebrate. Right? Um, what, gives right, what gives Jesus the right to claim that though? Uh, what gives Paul the right to claim that Jesus can make demands even over our food and over our calendar management? According to verse 9... The basis for that claim by Christ is the gospel. Did you see that? For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. The gospel is the good news that even though you and I were in big trouble because we had rebelled against a holy God, that same God took initiative to come save us by coming in the person of Jesus Christ and dying and rising again for our sins to bring us back into right relationship with God. And why did he do that? According to verse 9, one reason why he did that is so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and of the living. In other words, he wants to be the master of all of our choices, down to our food intake, down to the holidays we celebrate. He will not be our Savior unless he is our Lord. Because he's Lord, we just read that the day is coming when each of us will have to give account for everything we ate, every day we kept or didn't keep, and we'll each have to give account for how we interacted with others who ate differently than we ate and who kept days differently than we kept days. That was the message to the church at Rome. Verses 10 through 12, we will all have that day coming. So, that's the undergirding for all the food discussion, all the days discussion that God is the judge of all. That's the reason underneath it. That's why the, the forward-thinking types were wrong to despise the stiff, rigid types. And that's why the strict moral types were wrong to judge the free spirits, because Jesus is the Lord of both groups. He's the master, and they're both going to have to answer to God in the end. So our summary here of the content, just in its original context in Rome, here's what they would have taken from verses 1 through 12. Because we ultimately answer to the Lord... We must stop condemning one another on disputable matters. Because we ultimately answer to the Lord, we must stop condemning one another on disputable matters. Now you ask, what does that have to do with politics in this election coming up, right? Um, it may be a little more complicated than we think on first glance to get from here to our present day. Uh, here's what I mean. Some pastors at this point in the sermon would say, we must stop condemning one another on disputable matters. And 
Voting's a disputable matter, so don't condemn people who vote differently from you, okay? But are we sure, is what I want to ask, that how we vote is a disputable matter? Uh, We can't just assert that from the pulpit, because let's say it's 1941 Germany. Nazi party membership would not be a disputable matter in that case, actually, even though it's a political issue, a voting issue. If you were a member of the Nazi party, and we were living in 1941 Germany, we wouldn't take communion with you. We wouldn't welcome you as a member of this church. It wouldn't be a disputable matter in that case because Nazi party membership required ultimate loyalty and allegiance being sworn to Hitler. So, in order to make the claim or not make the claim that voting today for Republicans or Democrats is a disputable matter, we have to actually make a case for that. We can't just assert it. So that's why we're going to have do, what's we're going to do in the second portion of the sermon. The theology behind Romans 14. We're going to ask, to what issues can Romans 14 be legitimately applied? After reading those first 12 verses of the chapter, it should be clear that According to the Bible, there are two categories of ethical issues. Um, There are essential matters and there are non-essential matters. On essential matters, we have to agree as Christians uh, in order to be part of the church family. They're central matters to the faith. Um, On these matters, it's more important that we're right as a church than that we're united. So if someone falls out of line on these issues, we have something called church discipline, that we wouldn't recognize them as members of this church anymore and we wouldn't take communion with them any longer. Then there's the category that was talked about in this chapter, non-essential matters. Sometimes Christians call them Romans 14 issues because this chapter is so crucial in helping us think through them. On these issues, disagreement is okay. They are peripheral matters in the life of the faith. On these matters, it's less important that we're right on them than that we're united on them. And there's no position that you can take on a Romans 14 issue that would require church discipline. Two categories of issues. Maybe it would be helpful to talk about examples of each. We've already seen an example of this. Eating kosher foods or keeping the Sabbath on a certain day of the week. Right? Non-essential matters. Romans 14 issues. But we can't imagine Paul saying, you know what, church at Rome? One man is faithful to his wife. Another man cheats on his wife. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Right? We can't imagine Paul saying that because he would never say that. That's not a disputable matter in Paul's mind. That's an essential matter. In fact, when someone in Corinth was persisting in sexual sin, what did Paul say to the church in 1 Corinthians 5? He said, expel this person from among you. Right? So there are issues on which it's essential that we all agree. And there are issues in which disagreement is okay. And it's more important to have unity. Um, the problem is, it's not always clear on every issue whether it should be essential or non-essential, right? There's some issues that aren't specifically addressed in the New Testament that are for a new day and age that it's not always immediately evident whether they're essential or non-essential, even if we feel like we have a good answer to them. So how do we know which bucket to put a certain issue in, into the essential bucket or the non-essential bucket? One of the most helpful tools that I've come across was from somebody named Jonathan Lehman. And he talks about it in terms of straight line issues versus jagged line issues. This probably won't make sense when I say the quote, but then hopefully it'll make more sense as I give a few examples. 
Here's how he frames it. He says, straight line issues have a clear path from biblical principle to application. It's like a straight line. Jagged line issues require us to zigzag between one principle in Scripture and another principle in Scripture and another principle in Scripture, doing our best to find the path of wisdom and righteousness between the two. Um, So, in other words, on straight line issues, the application of the biblical principle is just as clear in Scripture as the principle itself. Right? Don't cheat on your husband. Don't cheat on your wife. That's very clear in Scripture. It's a very applicable principle. There's little synthesis needed. It's just there. It's straightforward. On other issues, the application of the biblical principle is far less clear than the principle itself. And so synthesis of different passages and wisdom are needed. They're jagged line issues. Um, So, um, one example. Uh, The question of, must Christians care for the poor and vulnerable? That's a straight line question, right? Because we have a biblical principle. All people are made in the image of God. And the Bible is just as clear about the application of that principle. We must care for the poor and vulnerable. Okay? What happens when we take it a step further and say, well, what about this question? Is caring for the poor and vulnerable best done through government programs or through individuals taking care uh, of the poor and vulnerable, right? There may still be a better answer than another answer, but it's a jagged line issue because in order to get from the principle that all people are made in the image of God to the case that the government should care for the poor and vulnerable or to make the case that individuals should care for the poor and vulnerable, you've got to put together multiple Bible texts. You've got to bring in some sociology, some economics, some statistics, some history of how it's worked out in the past to make your judgment that this is the best way to care for the poor and vulnerable, right? It's a jagged line to get from point A to point B. Still, this spectrum, I think, can be actually really helpful because not every issue is clearly straight line and every issue is clearly jagged line. It's a spectrum, right? Some are more straight than others. But the reason this spectrum can be helpful is this. The more straight line a particular issue is, the more likely it is to be an essential issue on which we all have to agree. The more jagged the line is from biblical principle to application— the more likely this is to be a non-essential issue on which it's okay if we disagree. Some other ways we can discern whether it's essential or non-essential is, has the church agreed on this for the last 2,000 years of church history? If the church has largely agreed on a given issue, it's likely that it's essential. If there's been a lot of disagreement, the church has never really come to a consensus, it's likely that it's non-essential. And finally, is this landing theology or launching theology is sometimes terminology we use. What that means is would the two different opinions on this issue launch us in two totally different directions? If so, that's launching theology and it's probably an essential issue. Or can we land in two different places after traveling down a whole road together following scripture and we just happen to land in two different camps? That's landing theology and that's probably non-essential. So here are just some tools in discerning whether an issue is essential or non-essential, when, a, when an issue comes up that the Bible doesn't spell out in the New Testament, whether it's essential or non-essential for Christians to agree on. Um, let's remember, though, what we set out to do in this second point. Okay? In this second point, this theological point, we set out to ask the question, what sorts of issues 
qualify as Romans 14 issues, non-essential issues on which it's okay for us to disagree um, and we don't have to work to come to agreement on them. Um, What makes adultery in this category and what makes eating kosher food in this category according to the Bible? We're just trying to sort out that question. And the principle, I think, is something like this. The harder it is to draw a line from biblical principle to present-day application on a given issue, the slower we should be to require uniformity of thought on that issue. I'm asking you to chew on a lot here, so thanks for thinking this through as I read it one more time. The harder it is to draw a line from biblical principle to present-day application on a given issue, the slower we should be to require uniformity of thought on that issue. So now, finally, we're ready to get to some application of what does Romans 14 say about our 2018 election. Now we've got some language with which to come about this. We've got language of straight line and jagged line. Um, And as we get to this application about voting specifically, we're going to see that there are straight line components of this matter and there are jagged line components of this matter. So first, let's just take the question of whether we should vote or not next Tuesday, okay? What's essential about that question? What's essential about that question that we have to agree on as Christians is that we have to be thoughtful about whether we vote or not. In other words, we can't just vote because our civics teacher told us to vote. We can't just not vote because we're lazy and didn't feel like going to the polling center, right? We have to be thoughtful about whether as Christians we have a responsibility to vote, whether it's a godly choice to make to vote in these elections or not. So, as we trace it down, we can see that there's a godly, uh, biblical case to be made for voting. It could go something like this. Romans 13, the chapter before this one, says that the governments of this earth have been given the power to swing the sword. If the government has the power to swing the sword and we're living in a democracy, don't we then have the privilege and the responsibility of appointing and electing those officials who get to swing the sword in a just or unjust way? And so therefore, shouldn't we take seriously that responsibility to try to elect officials who are going to swing the sword in a way that is just? Or you could even make the case, it's just simple neighbor love. Love your neighbor as yourself to go to the polling place and vote for people that you think are going to do the best job aligning with justice for the sake of your brother and sister and what's best for their flourishing. That's a Christian case for voting. But many of you have read a Christian case at some point for not voting, particularly when a given election feels to the person like a lesser of two evils type of situation. So here's how that case could go. Romans 1 says that it's not only wrong to do evil, it's wrong to give approval to those who do evil. Does my vote give approval to someone who's doing evil? Romans 3 takes the idea that we would do evil so that good may result and says that's a wicked concept, to do evil that good may result. So if my choice in the voting booth is truly between the lesser of two evils, I must abstain according to this reasoning. Because I cannot, as a Christian, do evil 
so that good may result. You may disagree or agree with one or the other of these perspectives. Um, all I'm trying to establish is that Christian cases have been, thoughtful Christians have made a case for voting and for not voting in particular situations. So what, so what does it come down to for us? Is this an essential issue or a non-essential issue? Well, when we look at it, the issue of whether to vote or not, it may not map perfectly to Romans 14. In other words, it's not totally clear that we'd be justified in saying that there's one group who's weak in faith and one who's strong in faith. However, it does map well to Romans 14 in terms of being a jagged line type issue. Right? Multiple texts come into play. Multiple principles get taken from the outside as you judge whether or not it's right to vote in a given election or not. It's a jagged line to get from any biblical principle to the conclusion, thou shalt vote in every election. And for that reason, the elders here at North Sub have unanimously affirmed this week that all members at North Sub, of course, are free to cast a vote, but we consider it a peripheral matter. In other words, if you thoughtfully come to the conclusion that you don't want to vote because to do so would be compromising your ethics and your faith, that would not warrant a rebuke from the elders at North Sub. You need to be fully convinced in your mind about your position, and we should be able to embrace one another whether we voted or not. Second, how we vote. This is the one everybody's all thinking about. Again, there are essential components of this question and non-essential components of this question. Straight line and jagged line. What's essential in this? Well, what's essential in this is that you answer to God for how you vote. Just like you answer to him for everything else, according to verse 12 in Romans 14. Because you answer to God for how you're going to vote next week, that means two things. Um, Who you vote for is not a separate issue from your faith. And so I've got this faith part of my life, and then I've got my political persuasions over here. Note, your voting decisions, when you get in that voting booth, need to be informed by your faith and guided by your faith, shaped by your faith. In other words... They need to be made in part with, uh, based on what you know about what the Bible says about good government and leadership and justice and morality and what contributes to human flourishing. What else does it mean that you answer to God for how you vote? It also means that other Christians, including me, speaking from this pulpit, can't tell you how to vote. We can't. We wouldn't even try here at North Sub as your pastors and elders because, because of Paul's model here in Romans 14, actually. Paul has an opinion on the matter being discussed in Romans 14. Do you recognize that? He's on the side of the strong in faith. He thinks that you should be able to eat all foods, right? He has a position, but he never once tells the weak to act in line with the strong, actually, on this matter, because it's a disputable matter. And so we as your pastors and elders, we have our own opinions on voting, of course, and what's the best decision to make in the voting booth. But we could never constrain your conscience by telling you how we think you should vote for that reason, following this model. It's a jagged line issue today in 2018. According to our judgment, of course, we don't consider this to be 1941 Germany right now, um, which, where it would have been a straight line issue that you can't pledge allegiance to Hitler and be claiming to be a Christian. We consider it to be a jagged line issue that you could 
sincere believers in the faith could come to the conclusion to vote for a Republican or to vote for a Democrat today in this day and age. And as you're making that decision to do so, we recognize that you're taking into consideration sociological considerations and political considerations about what the different branches of government do and institutional considerations about how good they're going to be at being able to carry out what they want to get done and even statistical considerations of what's the most likely outcome if person X gets elected for this position, right? There's a lot going into this besides just, I read Bible verse A and so I'm voting for this person. It's a jagged line, so we're going to stay out of that. Uh, We don't have the authority to tell you what to do in the voting booth in terms of specific votes. There's one more thing, though, that's essential about how you vote if you choose to vote. Your vote has to be uh, informed by your faith, and you must not violate your own conscience next Tuesday. You must not violate your own conscience. That's implied in verse 6. when, or verse 5, when each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And it's made explicit at the end of the chapter, actually. In verse 23, when Paul says, Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. What that's actually saying is that even if an action isn't inherently sinful, it actually becomes sinful for you, if you do it while not really believing that it's what God wants you to do. So if voting for person X, if I really don't believe in my heart that this is what God wants me to do, but for some outside reason, some other pressures, I do it anyway, then it's sin for me to do that, even if it wasn't inherently sin to vote for that person. Does that make sense? The Bible on these issues, these disputable matters, commands us not to do anything contrary to our consciences. That requires that each of us is working to be fully convinced about where we're going to vote. It doesn't matter what your uh, liberal, millennial children are, how they're going to shame you for your vote, right? It doesn't matter how the ghost of your conservative fundamentalist pastor from years gone by is in your head shaming you for how you vote. You have to vote in line with your conscience and what you believe that God wants you to do when you get in that voting booth. And you must not violate your conscience for anyone else's opinion or to avoid the shame that they will give you for your vote. And let's remember that the Bible isn't anti-certainty It isn't in the camp of, hey, I don't want to be pinned down anywhere. The Bible is encouraging us to do this research to get to the place where we can be fully convinced in our own mind, even on a disputable matter like who we vote for. So, hey, the only application we've done here politically is dealing with voting. There are, of course, many other ways that we are political actors besides in the voting booth. Um, If we had more time, we could look at other forms of political engagement and apply the same grid that we've been applying to those forms of engagement. But I want to make sure we don't lose sight of the main thing here. The most important political action you take in the coming weeks isn't how you'll vote. The most important political action that you and I will take in the coming weeks is whether or not we choose to participate in a community of love
in which believers in Jesus are uniting arm in arm, conservative and progressive, uniting in affection for one another, even if we're not united on our political opinions. That will be the most important political statement you make, the most, po- most important political action you take in the weeks to come. Paul's primary concern on disputable matters like this one is about unity. And so that's why our big idea for today is just this. Since next week's voting choices are disputable matters, we must welcome other believers who vote differently than we do. Since next week's voting choices are disputable matters, we must welcome. That means embrace. That means take communion with. That means joyfully celebrate brotherhood and sisterhood with other believers who vote differently than we do. I want to make sure I was clear on something here. This doesn't mean that there aren't better or worse decisions to make in the voting booth next week. That's not what we're saying, right? Paul doesn't think that both sides are equally right in Romans 14. What he thinks is that it's less important that everybody gets it right than it is that everyone's united. And I just wonder, what if? What if we were the kind of church during this contentious season where it was more important to us that we were united with each other than that we were all getting it right, so to speak, politically. Let me just finish by making this kind of crystal clear, putting a point on this for self-evaluation. Here's the question. Who are we more known for being friendly with? There are people in the world around us who share our politics, but not our faith. There are people in the world around us who share our faith, but not our politics. Who are we Christians, evangelical Christians, more known for being friendly with? I know what my unbelieving friends think of us Christians. They wouldn't hesitate to answer this question. They think that we are a lot more friendly to this group than to this group. Um, We've got it backwards, friends. But to shift so that This is taking place. We're showing neighbor love to those who share our faith, but not our politics. That requires that our primary identity is not our political identity. It's only if we're Christians first and members of a certain party somewhere down the line that we can have any hope of being the kind of community that we've been trying to paint a picture of. that can lock arms, conservative and progressive, and march forward united in our affection for one another, even when we're not united in our political opinions. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for purchasing our unity at the cross. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to bind us in that unity. Thank you that we don't have to craft this unity out of nowhere, out of thin air. But thank you that we have all the resources at our disposal to live into the unity that you have already purchased for us by the blood of Jesus. Help us stand out. Help heads to turn about the community that we have here when people hear about a place where conservative and progressive exist, sit next to each other in church, take communion together, love one another, uh, exist in small groups together, show neighbor love to one another despite thinking very differently about politics. Help that to be a witness to this world, a testimony of your great power to unite even those who have differences with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.
let's stand. We're going to sing this.